Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last Monday, America woke up shocked again. I realized as soon as I wrote that, it's an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? Shocked again? Is that possible? And yet that does seem to be the feeling when we hear news like that which came out of Las Vegas. We feel sympathy for those who are suffering fear that it could happen to someone we love, disbelief and anger that anyone would want to do such a thing. And we feel discouraged, for we hoped that there would be a turning point after Columbine or Sandy Hook or Charleston, and it continues. And so here we are, shocked again. It may surprise you, but I'm here today to speak to you of good news. I'm here to speak to you of good news, for I believe that our God knows all about hope. And I believe that because our God knows all about what it means to feel discouraged. And so this morning I was wondering if you'd give me a few minutes to tell you a story about a time when God was discouraged. The year was 721 B.C. The kingdom of Israel was tenuous and fragile. God had done everything for Israel, leading them out of slavery in Egypt and into the Promised Land. Following the rise of King David and the splendor of his son Solomon, who built a temple to the Lord, the people of Israel who had once been slaves were finally feeling like maybe they could be somebody. In this world of ancient Egyptian and Babylonian and Assyrian kingdoms, perhaps they had finally carved out a piece of the pie for themselves. But as it often does, security led to complacency and things began to fall apart. The rising significance of the house of Israel gave way to palace intrigue. The increasing wealth of the royal family led to greed and neglect of the common people. And the exposure to neighboring peoples and tribes who sometimes seemed to be doing better caused many of the Israelites to stumble in their faith and worship other gods. Things began to fall apart. Seeing the writing on the wall and that phrase, by the way, comes from a Bible story written during this period. Seeing the writing on the wall, prophets, the social philosophers of the day, began to hang out near the palace and the temple and the village marketplaces. And they spoke to anyone who would listen, and they spoke in allegory, in poetry. And they described what they saw in words like this. 
Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat around it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done in it when I expected it to yield grapes and it yielded wild grapes? The prophets who wrote these lines were poets. They were not historians or journalists interested in reporting events play by play. They took a look at the world around them. They had feelings about what they saw. And they crafted verses that were about a vision of what they felt was happening in the world around them. It's poetry. When Robert Frost writes that two roads converged in a yellow wood, we don't pull out Google Maps and try to figure out where he was. Instead, we see a thoughtful, discerning person who comes to a decision point in life and says to himself, which way will I go? When Shakespeare's Richard III cries, my kingdom for a horse, we don't see someone who's trying to strike a deal we see a desperate person who wants so badly to fix something in his life that is broken, who thinks, I would give up anything just to make this better. And he says it knowing how far he has fallen and that nothing reasonable in the world will fix what is broken. It's poetry. All of your lives involve poetry. And so does our Bible, but that can be easy to, for us to forget. So consumed are we with wanting reasonable answers. One of the verses in today's reading says, Now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. I will break down its walls. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. When we read this, we ask, how could God do such a thing? We don't want to believe in a God who could take action to cause harm, no matter how poorly we've behaved. That's not the God you got up on Sunday morning to come here and pray to. We find scriptures like this embarrassing. We hope that our atheist friends won't find out about verses like this and come up to us like, at cocktail parties when, and laugh at the time that we are wasting in church. So we come up with ways to make ourselves feel better about it. We look to the New Testament to make us feel better. Some people say that's the good part of the Bible, the part where Jesus comes and God only has nice things to say. Of course, when you read the New Testament more closely, you remember it that Jesus has some pretty hard sayings of his own. The fact is that the Bible 
both Old and New Testaments contains a lot of language that is hard to take if you expect for it to be reasonable. But it's not. It's expressive. It's poetry. And that's what poetry is for. The Bible's poetry is not supposed to be literal or an instruction manual for how to fix suffering or an efficient use of time. Poetry is not efficient. It's supposed to help us know that someone else is feeling and has felt what we feel. And that even pain and doubt is a part of having faith. Do I think God curses those who abuse this vineyard we call earth? No, I do not. I don't think God curses anybody. But I sure think that Isaiah felt that way when the kingdom of Israel was collapsing all around him. And I have seen many of you who have felt the same way about your relationship with God. Try imagining this passage about the love song to the vineyard a little bit differently. Imagine that you are the parent of a teenager or young adult. They all make stupid decisions from time to time, don't they? I sure did. I bet you did too. Parents worry all the time that no matter how hard we try to create the best circumstances for healthy children, at some point they will grow up and start making their own choices, and we know that they will make bad ones, and we pray that none of those bad decisions our children make will be irreversibly harmful ones. But it does not always work out. Imagine you're one of the frightening number of parents whose child experiments with drugs. What if it's something as dangerous as heroin? What if they get hooked? This is only one of countless circumstances in which a loving parent might cut off financial resources. What if the child becomes an addict and a thief? A loving parent might have to change the locks, hide valuables, call the police. A loving parent might consider military school or forced rehab and might have to endure phone calls during which a weeping, grown child calls and begs to be brought home and you have to say, I really do love you. I'll talk to you next week. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, and it yielded wild grapes, I will remove its hedge, I will break down its walls, I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Is it possible that God sometimes loves us the way we sometimes are forced to love one another? forget that this is poetry. 
something else that poetry requires is time. Here's an example of that. It's not quite so painful as the last one. Anna and I went to the symphony on Friday night. Many of you know she's eight months pregnant, but we heard that the new seats in Music Hall are more comfortable than they used to be, and we really wanted to be there on opening night. It was superb. We enjoyed the first part of the concert. Intermission came and went, and the second half of the concert began at a break. Before the last piece of the night, I was sitting there as the orchestra changed positions, and I thought to myself, this has been a long night. Anna must be getting uncomfortable. Maybe we ought to go. There's going to be a crowd getting out of the theater and a line in the parking garage. Maybe we ought to go. We stayed. The final piece began with 15 minutes or so of what I can only describe to you as regret. The obscure melody jumped around the orchestra, expertly executed, but not at all pretty, while I sat there thinking to myself, we should have gotten out of here. (laughs) I fidgeted uncomfortably in my seat. This was my fault, and it might end badly. For 15 minutes, I felt like this. And then it happened. Little by little, those random sounds from around the orchestra, they began to come together. They converged first into shared phrases and then into powerful, sonorous chords. The orchestra built in strength and retreated, built in strength and retreated again and again, magnificently, over and over. Soon there were well over 100 musicians pouring their hearts and their souls into the music that was coming from the stage. I could not imagine how it could become more intense than it was when a percussionist all the way at the back of the stage picked up a gigantic mallet and started to strike a chime that was hanging 100 feet from the ceiling like an immense railroad tie in the air. It sounded like Thor was creating the earth in his fiery forge. It was captivating. I was on the edge of my seat when the final note rang out from the room and the crowd leapt to its feet in excitement. This is what we came to see. And I stood there next to my wife, Anna, eight months pregnant, and I immediately turned to her and said, we need to get out of here. (laughs) And she said, yeah, let's go. The last five minutes of that incredible piece of musical poetry, they don't work unless you listen to the first 15. The book of the prophet Isaiah, it's 66 chapters long, the longest book in the Bible. We read today from the very beginning, from chapter 5. 
In chapter 9, Isaiah starts slowly to bring the people out of the noise of that vineyard with the words that we know from Christmas. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. In chapter 40, it continues, Comfort, oh, comfort you, my people. Chapter 43 is home to the verses we began our worship with today. Do not fear, for I am with you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Chapter 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Shall go out in joy, and come back in peace, and the mountains and hills before you shall burst into song, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And in chapter 65, Thus says the Lord, I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. Be glad. And rejoice forever, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. Thus says the Lord. Poetry needs time to do its work. I believe that in times of pain, God's heart aches for our world as much as a parent's heart aches for a lost child. I believe it. God has given us this vineyard, and so often one or more of us does not live in it as we should. When that happens, in any situation, when we suffer terrible grief and loss... I don't know that those who suffer are ready to hear that the mountains are bursting in song or the trees of the field will clap their hands. Sometimes we need to know that God knows the pain. Planting a vineyard and providing everything possible to make it thrive only to see it waste away. I do not believe that God ever abandons us, but I've sat with enough of you in your grief and your pain to know that sometimes it feels that way. Do I think that God had a purpose in mind when a gunman killed 58 people last week? Absolutely not. No way. But I do believe that God can work for good in the way that we respond to such a terrible tragedy. I do. I believe that given time, God can make healing happen in the world and in the lives of those who suffer. I believe God moves in the lives of heroic first responders and mental health professionals. I believe God is with victims and families as they begin the long and difficult work of rebuilding their lives. I believe that we will muster the courage and strength to change laws and standards to lead us to greater peace. Do I think God has a vision of something better? I believe it. 
comfort. Comfort you, my people. In the wilderness, keep working to prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord who is about to create a new heavens and a new earth.